0: There's that Warren Buffett yeah. line about how nobody knows you've been swimming naked until the tide goes out, <laughs> but I think it applies here.
1: Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Right now, as we speak, possibly in Australia, maybe in the jungles of Southeast Asia, A cunning young man is on the run, pursued by a cabal of powerful business interests who believe he scammed them out of many millions of dollars. No, this is not the plot of the latest Hollywood thriller. It's in fact the real-life saga of Inigo Philbrick, a once high-flying art dealer whose unconventional and unusually lucrative approach to the art market earned him a reputation as a wunderkind in the field until, that is, the money started to disappear the lawsuits began piling up and Philbrick himself vanished. To some, the story of Inigo Philbrick is that of a brilliant and ambitious innovator who flew too close to the sun. To others, he's simply a con artist who dazzled sophisticated art collectors with the promise of easy money and then cheated them through elaborate sleight of hand. What is clear is that he devised a way of leveraging the art market's gray areas to an extent that would impress Wall Street's slipperiest financial wizards, This week marks the release of the latest issue of the Artnet Intelligence Report, and it contains a hair-raising account of Philbrick's rise and fall by Artnet News senior market reporter Eileen Kinsella, who has been following the story since the very beginning. Today, I'm happy to have Eileen in the studio to unpack this whole sordid affair. Thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Eileen. Thanks for having me. So let's go back to the basics. Who is Inigo Philbrick, and how did you first get started in the art business?
0: Well, he's a young dealer. He grew up in Connecticut. He went to Goldsmiths College in London. So he started as an intern at White Cube in 2010 at the age of 23, Hmm. rose very quickly through the ranks, and was soon head of a private sale division. And from then on, he struck out on his own with some backing from Jay Jopling, who was his original boss Mm -hmm. at White Cube.
1: The the legendary founder of White Cube, which is Damien Hirst's gallery, Tracy Emmons' gallery. Right, all the YBAs. One thing I think we should point out is that Inigo didn't just come from nowhere. He's actually what amounts to Connecticut art royalty in that he's the son of Harry Philbrick, who was once the director of the Aldrich Art Museum and is now the head of the Philadelphia Art Academy. So how did this guy who comes from a museum family get wrapped up in the kind of dirtier you know, art market?
0: That's a great question. There is a little bit of an interesting twist there, which is one person who told me, you know, when he burst onto the scene when he was buying at auction and people were kind of like, who is this young guy doing all this? He said the name Philbrick carried a lot of weight with him because if you looked it up, you immediately saw he's the son of Harry Philbrick, this esteemed museum leader. But what we found when we reached out to Harry Philbrick was that they had been estranged for at least a decade and that he seemed to know nothing at all about his son's whereabouts or or what he had been out to other than what he read in press reports. And then to, to take it a step further, Inigo himself attending Goldsmiths, which his father did also, you would have thought maybe the, the line would have been much more about art appreciation mm-hmm. than the art of the deal, which everybody said he was a master at.
1: Hmm. So when most people imagine the art market they probably think of somebody walking into a gallery or an art fair, buying an artwork, and then taking it home to hang on their wall. Is that the way that Inigo approached <laughs> art dealing?
0: Definitely not. Speculation was just a huge part of how he did business. Almost all of the deals involve him reaching out to people in all corners of Europe or uh, the U.S. and saying, hey, do you want to buy 50% share of a painting? And then we'll flip it and we'll split the profits.
1: So you buy an interest in the artwork, but you don't actually get the artwork. It's like a stock, essentially. How does this work?
0: Yeah, I mean, he's not only taking advantage of speculative financial tools that some people have compared to you know derivatives on Wall Street. Mm. He's also taking a cue from what has become more common practice at auctions over the years, which is direct auction house guarantees or third-party guarantees where auction houses want to alleviate some of their risks, so then they farm it out to a third party. And not only was Inigo one of those third-party guarantors from a lot of people we spoke to, he was very much involved as the secret backer, taking a cue from that notion of farming out risk, you're not buying 50% of a painting, you're shouldering some of the risk. With the idea being that if it does well, you get some of the profit, and if it loses, you help mitigate the overall loss by assuming a portion of the risk. Mm -hmm. So that was very much how he approached it.
1: So one word that a lot of people use when talking about Inigo is flipping. Yes. What is flipping?
0: Flipping is when you buy an artwork, not for the goal of hanging it on your wall and living with it and enjoying it, but reselling it for a profit. Again, it's a hedge, it's speculation. As we saw in some of the lawsuits, the basic idea was to buy a particular works. For instance, a Donald Judd sculpture, a Yayoi Kusama installation and a Rudolph Stengel painting where you bought it for a certain amount and then you had a target price. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, a Judd sculpture was bought for $2.25 and the quote unquote target price was $2.8 So, give or take $600,000.
1: So let's just break down the fundamentals of how he operated. What kind of artworks did he actually do business with?
0: Uh, He seemed to have a real affinity for certain names, and those would include Carol Dunham, Rudolf Stengel, Wade Guyton. Uh, I mentioned Kusama. So definitely artists that he saw were the target of demand and ones that he clearly thought there would be profit for, Mm. you know, the said flipping, that he thought were on the rise in the market.
1: And all of these artists are people who have very broad collector bases. Correct. Which I think makes them kind of a sure bet when it comes to investment-minded collecting. What kind of collectors did he work with?
0: He actually did a lot more like business-to-business transactions from what I can see from the suits. The people that were backing him were not necessarily connoisseurs, more like people that had shell companies, that had investment entities. I think he definitely had a little bit more of a B2B
1: model, sort of, if you will. So if you were to speculate on the rough kind of composition of who these people might be, are these financiers? Are these art collectors? Are these art professionals? Are these people who just have hot money who want to get, you know, quick buck?
0: I mean, I think all of the above. Like, for instance, this person that he worked with named Sasha Pesco is known to be a fairly seasoned collector. Mm. And he was operating under an entity called Sat Finance Investment. He was one of the people that bought not only a half share of a Rudolf Stingle, but a percentage of a Jean-Michel Basquiat painting that he now believes he owns Mm -hmm. outright. So my my impression from what I've read and who I spoke to is that he very much just was sort of operating with a small circle of high-flying people that fit all of the above labels that you mentioned, like people with money that, you know, wanted to make more of
1: it. So he was very young, as you pointed out. How does somebody that young and that relatively untested gain the confidence of people to be dealing with these kinds of sums?
0: I mean, when I was reading over the emails, his correspondence with backers, with investors that entrusted him with their money and their time to buy works, he's very much focused on the ins and outs of a market, you know, rattling off a comparable, like say, oh, I'm so confident this Kusama will sell because I'm in touch with, you know, two or three interested buyers. And we have a previous one that sold for again, like rattling off a number that sounds appealing in the beginning, at least. I I think he was doing well and he was doing lucrative deals. So that would definitely Hmm. give people confidence. It's just clearly the speed with which he was trying to do deals was a huge part of his undoing. A lot of people use these sophisticated financial tools to flip paintings and to realize a profit pretty quickly, but it takes time. Hmm. It takes time for value to accumulate. People don't like the notion something has been bought just to be resold for profit. It sort of diminishes Mm -hmm. how they look at it. The whole notion of something being shopped around before Mm -hmm. it comes to the auction block usually is a mark
1: against it. And so he was able to convince these people that this was a deal that they were able to get in on the ground floor that was a sure thing. Exactly. And what kind of personality did he bring to the table?
0: It sounded like he was sort of quiet and intense, and uh, more than one person said, just very, very focused on the deal. Very much about the numbers and the ins and outs, and not so much about the quality of the art itself, but again, just this ability to rattle off market stats about who's buying this artist and why he's hot. And for instance, for Rudolf Stingel, noting this huge uh, show that was happening in Basel, Switzerland, ahead of last year's Art Basel, and saying, well, this is definitely going to jack his prices up, which does happen ahead of major museum shows, Prices start to rise and Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of buzz about an artist. So things like that, like very much able to connect the dots when it came to telling a good market story.
1: What happened after that Rudolf Stingle show? Did that have the bump that was expected?
0: No, unfortunately it it didn't have the intended uh, result for him. And that's actually a very key part of this lawsuit that was brought by the Berlin investors, Fine Art Partners, because they had purchased a Rudolf Stingle for, I think it was like 5.6 million and... There's a couple of other things that complicated the sale, but by the time it got to Christie's, he was telling them, oh, we're definitely going to get $9 million for this. The Basel show has created huge buzz, plus they guaranteed it. And that was an outright lie. Huh. Christie's had never guaranteed it, and it sold for $6 million. So they didn't make the intended profit that they were trying for.
1: And I believe the allegation in the suit is that the the guarantee from Christie's was actually a forged document.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: So what kind of presence did Inigo have in the art scene?
0: He sort of had a little bit of a frat boy party-ish sort of look. When we're talking about him at these auctions, he was usually sporting a five o'clock shadow and a tailored Italian suit. And he would have like the top two buttons of his shirt unbuttoned.
1: Where did he appear in the art world? Was he a participant outside of the auction scene in the galleries and the museums?
0: Yeah, I mean, people just talk about meeting him and then just seeing him everywhere, running into him at Art Basel and at Frieze and at the related art gallery openings and parties. And just, you know, he was a presence. He definitely was a presence. And I think that also went with developing his reputation and the buzz around him.
1: It seems like one thing that he didn't really do was take possession of the artwork, almost as if people are just dealing with the access and the rights to selling this artwork. Is that correct?
0: I I think that applies more to his investors because in some cases when people were asking him about the whereabouts of works or saying we want to reclaim this, it would be like, oh, it's at a Miami warehouse or it's in my gallery because I can't sell it out of storage. You have to let me hold on to it. So when it comes to the notion of taking physical possession, it's more that he did have it or did have knowledge of the whereabouts, but the people that he was representing to, they didn't have physical possession. Mm. Things were just in storage or about to be sold. So So it was just like
1: a JPEG somewhere that they'd seen, but they'd never actually seen the physical thing. So there's a lot of trust involved here. Is it just me or does this sound more like the big short than your traditional art business?
0: That's such an accurate representation because it is, it's all about speculation. When you think about the big short, it wasn't about buying real estate. It was about buying the possibilities and the derivatives of the real estate and backing out from there. So the further away that you as a buyer get from taking physical possession of a work, the more risk that's inherent in it. Very interestingly, one of the advisors I spoke to, I said, does this serve as a cautionary tale? And she said, no, because I don't ever buy 50% of an artwork. Hmm. I buy for my collectors and they hang on their wall. And that that line keeps resonating with me when I see all the risk that people took on in not taking physical possession and
1: of a work. Say, one thing they say is that, the derivatives market is actually many times larger than the underlying stock market. How is the art market like the stock market? And how is it different from the stock market?
0: Well, with the stock market, at least there is a defined value in an exchange. So, say if you have a share of Apple and you want to see how much it's worth, you can go and you can look. Um, what it's trading for on whatever exchange that day. But with art, there's so many more variables. I mean, everything from the history of ownership to the condition of it, and very much so that's something that Inigo was playing around with when he's promising somebody that a Rudolf Stingle is going to be worth $3 million more in the next year because of a show in Basel. Mm -hmm. That's a real gamble.
1: A lot of people talk about the art market being opaque and unregulated, where they say that the stock market... Even though it is this kind of wild, root and kind of marketplace, it still is governed by very clear legal strictures, whereas the art market is seen as a little bit more of the pure Wild West, where there aren't really rules. What kind of license do you have to make deals in the art market that you don't? Yeah,
0: a lot of people, when I talk to them, make the comparison about buying a house and how you'd Hmm. never purchase a house unless you saw where the title was and that it was coming to you. And, you know, there's things like title insurance to ensure that you don't have any equivalent in in the art market. Somebody tells you that they have a $10 million painting and you can buy a $5 million share in it. Unless you somehow track down what's been said or sold about that painting, you'd never know that another... Half share had been sold to somebody with an offshore entity in the Bahamas, unless you hired a private detective. And he, even then you wouldn't know. You're, you're taking somebody's word for a multi-million dollar mm-hmm. transaction.
1: So this is really a handshake deal. Right. And then what kind of recourse do you actually have to f- ascertain if there is some kind of stable underlying object of value here?
0: You don't. And that's why we have five lawsuits now with people seeking to freeze assets and everybody's trying to line up and um, assert their priority. You know, I lost 10 million, I lost 5 million, I was sold this and here's the contract to prove it. This is all of these things that are going to be sussed out in legal cases.
1: So here's the question that I think everybody's waiting for, which is, when did things start to go south?
0: <laughs> things started all falling apart for him in October of 2019 when this Berlin investment firm just finally got fed up. And they filed a lawsuit that had an awful lot of detail in it. Hmm. So that served as a huge red flag and revelation to other people that had interests in works because not only were some of them the same works, um, people had similar deals with them. So it's like, if you see that, you know, somebody has been the victim of a forgery and you bought from that same gallery, how are you not going to be concerned that maybe you don't own fake works as well?
1: So did these parties get together and trade information?
0: No, to some degree they will, but it's basically the fact that the Fine Art Partners lawsuit sort of opened the floodgates where people started again coming forward and being concerned. But one thing that struck me, and I think it speaks to his state of mind, was that he was on the hook for a $10 million loan that he used art as collateral for, that he then increased to $13 million, And right before everything fell apart for him as far as this lawsuit and everything it brought out. He was telling somebody, Oh, you know, I, I'm a week late on a six figure payment, but I'm going to make it. And it was a copy of an email that I, I couldn't believe how confident he was sounding, even as a, a, things were apparently crashing down around him.
1: I mean, at one point he was selling over a hundred million dollars in art a year. Yeah. And yet he was still posting losses. Yeah. How is that possible?
0: You know, it's a good question because when I looked at those statements, they were filed with Company House in the UK. Company House is a regulatory agency where any registered companies in the UK, even art galleries file with them so that you might be able to see White Cube did, you know, X amount of dollars of business last year. It doesn't give you a whole lot of detail about profit and loss, but it does require you to report like an overall general revenue. And so quite frankly, hundred million pound figure for your sales is stunning. So to have a loss of the extent that he did, it's incredible. It chalked up the losses to differences in currency. Although there are some indications that trouble may have been brewing already because there was a, a series of filings where it looked like he was in danger of being kicked off this register because he was not holding himself to their reporting standards. So I don't know how thorough or accurate that report is, but it seemed like it came at a time when he was already beginning to become under financial distress.
1: So you mentioned Fine Art Partners as being the people who kind of cracked this open with the first lawsuit. Indigo had a very unusual relationship with them. Can you explain exactly how they worked together?
0: Yeah, it started in 2015, and it was an agreement to buy high-priced works of art, and each one had its own separate contract about where they bought it, what price they bought it at, and what the target price would be for how much they would resell it. The one thing I thought was interesting is that given these lofty promises about I'm going to get you a $6 million painting and we're going to resell it for $9 million, which is a $3 million profit, there was not very strictly defined timetables, mm-hmm. which you would expect. If you were expecting to see that kind of money, you would want to know, is it going to take me 10 years to get there? Is it going mm-hmm. to take me 20 years to get there? It seemed like it was sort of roughly defined as between two and three years, but everybody that I've spoken to said $3 over a three-year period is a really tall promise. So that was the agreement to buy works and then resell them. And along the way, he started doing all these things that weren't revealed to them afterwards, which is reselling it, reselling shares of it. So by the time they found out about it and were at their end as far as their patients, in some cases it was too late. Things had been sold out from under them.
1: So one thing that maybe is not totally clear to our listeners is that Inigo was selling the same artwork multiple times to multiple people. Right. How do you do that?
0: How he was able to do it is just by convincing people that he was successful and convincing them to trust a young dealer who clearly seemed to know what he was doing. For instance, this one Rudolf Stingle painting, you have fine art partners thinking that they're the owner of it, but in between the time they bought it and it it going to the auction block at Christie's in 2019, he sold a half share to uh, Sasha Pesco, who's Sat Finance. He sold... Another aspect of it to Gazzini Properties, which turns out to be the UK billionaire Rubin Brothers, and ultimately they were the people that consigned it to auction. So not only is Fine Art Partners thinking that they are the people that consigned it and they're going to get the money from it, they don't even know that it's been consigned under a completely different name. So technically they're not the owners as far as Christie's is concerned.
1: So... All these people ostensibly own this Rudolph stingle.
0: or have a claim to a part of it.
1: Who actually has it? Who has the physical painting?
0: Christie's, because they've been instructed <laughs> not to do anything with it until a court decides what's the next step. And they're not party to, to, to the litigation, but they're awaiting further instructions.
1: So, at what point did Inigo disappear?
0: that's a good question because he's never answered any of the legal complaints that have been filed against him since October, 2019. And the latest that we know is that even the attorney that he retained in Miami to answer this fine art partners lawsuit stopped representing him because he said he didn't fulfill his contractual obligations, which to me reads like the lawyer was not getting paid.
1: Do we know where uh, Inigo was last seen?
0: No, there's been some speculation. I've heard everything from the Bahamas to Singapore to islands off of Australia. And I even reached out to the woman he was dating before he went missing, who's this reality TV star, Victoria Baker Harbor. She was on a, a reality show in, in the UK called Made in Chelsea. The only response that I got back from her was that she's also in the dark and that she doesn't know anything. She's just about the closest link I could get to Philbrick. And clearly his father doesn't have any more information for me since he said they've been estranged for a decade.
1: So Inigo hasn't answered any of the legal proceedings, but has he defended himself or said anything on any platform whatsoever?
0: Not that I know of.
1: So what is happening now? This is all happened in incredible speed over the course of less than half of a year at this point. What's the next shoe to drop?
0: Yeah, I mean, in addition to the actual outright lawsuits, which are you know multiple claims for uh, paintings, there's also been at least four different assets seizure requests in hmm. the UK Basically, what it translates to is people lining up in an effort to get their money back and everybody's going to be putting up their hand saying to a judge or to a a court, I deserve priority. I'm also curious at what point do law enforcement authorities get involved because clearly this is now tens of millions of dollars that's missing.
1: There is some indication that this might just be the tip of the iceberg. How big do you think this could get?
0: There's probably going to be a lot more people stepping forward saying yeah. that they are out money or that they believe that they owned artworks. I have been looking back at some of the previous art world scandals like the Nodler forgery scandal, which totaled up to $80 million. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, Larry Salander who went to jail for defrauding investors. And his, some of his tactics were very similar to mm-hmm. the kind of things that mm-hmm. Inigo was doing, which was double dealing, selling works that he didn't own, you know, pocketing the money. And that fraud, I think it was like 120 million at the end. I wouldn't be surprised if this was somewhere in that vicinity.
1: And so Larry Salander of the fabled Salander O'Reilly Gallery, which was this Upper East Side gallery that traded in Renaissance masterpieces and old master paintings, he famously would sell the same painting over and over again to different people in order to get the revenue in because he thought that he was just one deal away from being able to make everybody good. Do you think that Inigo was somehow in a similar mindset when he was approaching these deals?
0: I do. I really think that the crux of this is doing those kinds of deals and taking that kind of risk and then getting caught out. There's that Warren Buffett line about how nobody knows you've been swimming naked until the tide goes out. (laughs) I think it applies here because really, if if the money had kept rolling in, Mm -hmm. he could have kept paying off his various investors. Nobody would have suspected that anything was wrong.
1: One person that I know you managed to have some correspondence with was his old mentor at White Cube Gallery, Jay Jopling. Tell me a little bit about how the two of them got intertwined in Jopling's legal complaint, and what Jay had to say about his former protege.
0: Even though Jay was pretty reticent and didn't want to give an interview, I did think there was a... Interesting amount of detail in the email that he sent to me where he said, you know, he was a bright, young, intelligent man. I, I really believed in him. I backed him when he went out on his own. I, I've learned from a source that among the asset seizures that I knew of, there was an asset seizure request that had been granted in London High Court by an entity called O'Genie, and this person didn't know who O'Genie was or you know what it was about, but it seemed to have very detailed information about financial dealings. This person also pointed out to me that O'Genie is Inigo spelled backwards. Uh, <laughs> so at one point I considered the uh, possibility that it might actually be Inigo himself sort of operating from afar. But eventually I realized that the day that Jay Jopling attained his asset seizure request in UK court, also was the day that O'Genie received it. And he wouldn't comment to me on whether he is O'Genie, but I'm starting to draw my own conclusions.
1: (laughs) How unusual is this kind of financial intrigue in the art market? Is Inigo somebody who has broken from the norms to to do this mad scientist innovation? Or, or is it not as rare as that?
0: No, I think it's very much a sign of the times. When I think back to the way that we've uh, heard about the traditional way that business is done, I can't imagine, you know, the Whitneys or the Rockefellers ever conceiving of like, I'm going to sell a half share of that painting, or I'm going to take out a $10 million loan against it. But like so much else with the way that our, our views develop and with like our money-obsessed society, it's like, oh, there's value in this artwork. The art market has gone gangbusters for at hmm. least the last decade or 20 years. So it's just all about trying to wrench some value out of that. And so, of course, then you have these financialization tools where it gives rise to all manner of strategies. He's very much of this generation. You know, mm-hmm. he's not unique in that way, but it's the extent to which he took it and it's the speed with which he went
1: there's gonna be a lot more information as these cases start going to trial. So I have a feeling that we're going to have you back on the podcast before too long. Thank you very much for coming oh, on. Thanks the for Art having Angle. me. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening and see you next week.